I'm eating a pizza with potato chips on it. Oh, fuck. I didn't start what? recording locally. Did it come with potato chips on it? Yeah, did you put that on, or is that... No, no, no. It's, it's like, um... I don't know. I was so hungry and so deranged from fasting all day that I ordered, like, the, the first thing on the menu, literally, like... I was like, what's the worst thing I can eat right now? Pizza Hut. What's the first thing on Pizza Hut's menu so I don't have to scroll? And this is a roast dinner pizza. So it has gravy instead of sauce. It has potato chips on it. It has stuffing and mushrooms. Interesting. We need to shut down Turf Island. It's not good. I'll be honest with you. It's not good. If I was religious, I would have just left the church. Of the existence of that pizza. <laughs> I'm sorry you are smooth-brained, Joe. <laughs> it's fine. I think that's just what a TVI is, is getting your wrinkles smoothed out via high-velocity explosion. Mm. Eh. Speaking of high-velocity explosions... Well, uh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> welcome to... Well, there's your problem. It's a podcast about engineering disasters. And fighting turfs. With slides. That's right. Um... I'm Justin Rosniak. I'm the person who's talking right now. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I'm Alice Caldwell-Kelly. I'm the person who's eating the worst pizza ever devised by man right now. And my pronouns are <laughs> she and her. I'm still a little jealous of it. It's, uh, no, it's like, you think these are going to be like potato slices, and then you bite into them, and then you're just like, oh, no, these oh, are just chips. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. Uh, hi. Yay, Liam. My name is Liam Anderson. I am the person that spent all day today screaming at you on Twitter. Uh, also, uh, if you're a turf, I will happily change your pronoun to was and were. And we have a guest. Uh, my name is Joe Kasabian. I am the host of Lines Up by Donkeys podcast, along with Liam nowadays. Uh, my pronouns oh, yeah. are he and him. Oh, also, I have a book coming out called The Prisoner Dilemma. Oh, shit. This, when's this episode coming out? Uh, Wednesday. Uh-huh. Uh well it came out on July twentieth. Please go buy it because I enjoy That's eating yesterday. Food. Yeah. Go 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 <laughs> buy that. Go buy Hooligans of Kandahar, which is also yeah. great. Absolutely buy fucking hooligans. I, I have to say something, uh, Liam. Was and were are not pronouns, they're verbs. These are jokes. <laughs> These are jokes. No. Uh Liam keeps the things that are not jokes to strictly actionable threats to fight people. <laughs> I hope have a nice time. Thank See, you. I'm learning. All right. Um, Excuse anyway. me. Fuck. I think I'm pregnant. Great. <laughs> Proud of you. Speak, speaking of high velocity explosions, what do you see on the screen in front of you? Is a large plume of smoke. Um, and not much else, because mm. to my knowledge, this is the only photo of the this incident happening in real time. Hits the dab rig. Oh yeah. Hey, gonna... I'm glad someone got the uh, photographic evidence of the first fat-ass vape cloud over Yo, Canada. Yo, they found my mixtape! <laughs> what yeah. an honor! Today we're going to talk about one of the largest explosions ever to have occurred. Uh, certainly one of the largest non-nuclear explosions. Um, oh, yeah. I, I mean, man-made ones, obviously, there have been some pretty big natural explosions. I mean, this is not very large compared to, like, I don't know, a supernova, right? But yeah, today we're. Where are we on like the volcano scale, like in terms of stuff that has happened on Earth? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, this is this is about a two point nine kiloton explosion. Uh, I would guess most volcanoes are much larger than that, but I don't know many things about volcanoes. Some of them don't explode at all. 
Anyway, today we're going to talk about the Halifax explosion, which was an explosion in Halifax. <laughs> wow, really? You're really yeah. selling the excitement. <laughs> I, re- I really love when they put the uh, the details of the story in the title like that. Yes. I want I want you to know, listener, that I haven't eaten or drunk anything for about 18 hours. I've had a horrendous toothache this whole time. And then immediately the second the sun went down, uh like astronomical sunset happened. Um I slammed a large amount of ibuprofen root beer and then a horrible horrible pizza. So I am not firing on all cylinders yeah, for this you one, I'll be honest. Describe to the listener what the pizza you're eating is. I think, so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I we have to impose a impose a blockade on Turf Island. Yeah, yeah, hundred <sighs> percent. I want to meet the person who came up with that pizza. Just out of it's your like mind a, on like LSD. A, like a, <laughs> a Sunday roast dinner on a pizza. Like, first of all, how dare you? Mm. How how do you dare? It sounds like a really fucked up version of the Wawa Gobbler. I was thinking that. Yeah. What the no, fuck is no a gobbler? No one could gobble this. What is a gobbler? Is it's, a thir- it's a thir- Thanksgiving dinner on a roll, Joe. Yes. So, so at, least, at, least, at least on a roll, that's like that's like a sandwich. That's fine. On a pizza, no, D- deranged. Yeah. yeah, I could do it. On, I could do it on a sandwich. I can't do it on a pizza. You can't put gravy on pizza. Well, somebody did. Um, but before before we talk about either the pizza. Or the how the the subject of the podcast, the Halifax two explosion. equally banned disasters. We we have to we have to talk about the goddamn news. Ah, fuck! That's the short this, one. This, yeah, this is a short one. Um, uh, we can just hold on. I can it. I can give you I can give you like a James Bond one in the butt. Squeeze it. How's that? Oh, <laughs> very nice. Um, all right. Uh, I I had to do this one because it's funny. Uh, a, a weirdo yacht designer has designed a real-life snowpiercer, but significantly what? worse. Is yes. yacht designer a real job? That's not no. a real job. Yacht designer is definitely like one of the more fake jobs out there because all you had to do is design like a extremely expensive thing and then sit around and wait for a buyer. And yeah, you, you have to like make a child's drawing of a boat. Yeah, it's well, something that's on the resume of someone who eventually tries to put a laser on the moon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We could put a laser on the moon. We I already think, have one in space. Given how expensive yachts are, you probably only need to sell one or two of them, and you're set for life. Mm. But you can design like fifty of them, and none of them get. Gotta be built. hard to like break into though, because you got to figure like MBS already has like a yacht guy, right? Like he's not gonna switch yacht guys in midstream. Yeah, there's not there's not a huge market for yacht guys. Yeah, I think you only need to <laughs> hit a home run once or twice, and you're set. If we're doing this based on commission. You have like an RV mm-hmm. commercial, like, yeah. you know, Dale's Yachts, and it's, you know, exit 188. What am I going to do with all these yachts? Miami's a weird <laughs> town. This is from Architectural Digest. The G-Train, billed uh, as the oh, world's gosh. first private luxury locomotive. Oh, no. Please note, it's a train, not a locomotive. Has 14 glass-enclosed cars that can digitally project a host of visuals. Plans for the 1,300-foot train include a what? primary suite at the front, followed by 18 guest rooms, oh, a gym, it's a train spa, version garden, of the fucking fridges car. with the screen on the door that tell you what's in them and also advertise to you. Yes. Oh, a grand what? reception hall with space for art How exhibitions, live be? music, and movie screenings. 
fold down wings, great al, al fresco terraces what? for social events. And At what speed? <laughs> you got to think, you know, it's probably not a good idea if there's any line side obstacles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, like any bugs in the air? Bugs or in birds. the air. Birds are going to hate this shit. I'm thinking a telephone pole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's weight reduction. At the end of the day, it's all weight reduction, baby. Or a train <laughs> on the adjacent track. Can you imagine like a, an Accela that's just stuck yeah. behind like a, a CSX train and it has wings like an Unreal Tournament to just brush it aside? I'm thinking more like this thing's gone 50 miles an hour down, uh, down the main line. There's a bunch of people s- sitting on the terrace projecting out the side and it gets sheared off by the garbage train. Um, now, now, my question, my sort of railroad historical question is, how fast were trains going before we, like, last enclosed passenger carriages? Because we used to just have open wagons, right? So, like, I don't know. Um, well, until a couple years ago, when some folks ruined it, um, you could sit on the back terrace if you had a private railroad car, and you had a business car, like it has a little back uh, open area, right? You could sit out on that on the Northeast Corridor doing 100 miles an hour. But I think, Hell yeah. I think some uh, private car owners got drunk and ruined it for everyone. Uh, I don't know what they did. <laughs> or getting DUI in a train is definitely a move that I can support. Yeah. Because like, at, at least like you're just going in a straight line. You can't just like weave off the road like most people do in a DUI. Yo, I actually drive a train better when I'm drunk. <laughs> It puts me in the zone, you know. Well, I, I, really... I would like to think that someone's gonna uh, gonna hack the the glass displays and just display goatsy on every car. Oh, that'd be funny. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking that uh, you know they have to tow it somewhere, dead in tow, and um, in train forces from like I don't know two box cars full of newsprint just crush it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the price tag on this thing. A mere $350 million. And that's just to, like, get the tr- the train itself. How, how do you, like, operate it? Where are you supposed to, like... Well, presumably you have to find several things that don't exist. Um, such as someone who's qualified to drive it, basically the, the entire railroad network. Um, railroads which will allow it to run on their network. Which is none. Um, yeah, which is also none. Um, you know, you... you, you, you this is clearly done by someone who, who has no idea how trains work, which I think is very funny. He um, did build a yacht. I mean, like, perhaps several yachts. Perhaps more than one. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, th- nobody ever talks about the yacht to train pipeline. For good reason. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, the, the, the rails are not nearly as permissive of private vehicles as the ocean is. No, that's why train is good. <laughs> yeah, as, as someone that lives in Hawaii, I can uh, I can oh, confirm Joe, do you that. Live in Hawaii? Both, yeah, I've never uh, heard that show. Occasionally, I can see a fucking yacht that's the size of a fucking military ship just put on by. But there's no trains here, so you know. Hmm. That's a damn shame. We have to get a train. Nationalize yachts or nationalize yachts. That too. There are several places you can go on your luxury train, which you couldn't in a yacht, like, um, uh, um, I don't know. Moncton. Oh, no, oh, Moncton has a Ogdenburg. Port. Yeah, you could go to Kansas City. You could mm-hmm. go to... You could, Omaha. You could go, yeah, uh, you could go to Omaha, you yeah. Could, you could go to Minot. You, you could go to... 
the Great Slave Lake. Mm. That's what yes. it's called. Don't get mad at us. That does not <laughs> sound like a lake I would like to visit. Uh, you could go to uh, Castez in Scotland. Mm-hmm. You go to Mexico go City. To, uh, 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 to be fair, Mexico City is nice as hell. Mm. But you could go there in this giant suicide train. Yes. Side my ass up. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So anyway, the GoFundMe for us to buy other and uh, buy our Snowpiercer and then go Snowpierce somewhere um, will be in the description. We can't call it the Snowpiercer because there's not going to be any fucking snow to pierce. No, we're gonna. <laughs> well, I think I, part of the part of the Snowpiercer is it creates the snow. I guess you just take some snow machines, put them on a roof. Put them on the oh, terraces. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like an artificial ski mountain. Yeah, it's like one of those uh, trains with snowplows on it, but in reverse. Yes. Um, anyway, that was the goddamn news. You sound so grim, man. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've uh, actually been feeling pretty good today. I, oh, I don't, okay, know. That's I don't good. know why I feel grim. I, I, I worry. <laughs> we did just talk about the apocalypse train. This is true. Yeah. I don't know, you, you have like melancholic Polish genes. That'll oh, do yeah. it. Do you ever. <laughs> okay, so I thought we'd start with a simple question. What is Halifax? Uh, the best worst city in the world, baby. Probably the place in Canada where if someone grew up in, they were told that it was the meth capital of Canada. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's true of Every city, yeah. Everywhere. Every city. Yeah. If every city is the meth capital, no city is the meth capital. Yeah, you gotta wonder what the actual meth capital is. Quebec. At this point, I don't want to know because it'll, it'll it'll ruin the. I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna say like uh, Windsor because it's close to where I'm from. Yeah, it's Windsor. <laughs> it's it's close enough to Detroit to be meth touching. Sudbury of the world. <laughs> no, of Canada, Alice. Oh, of Canada. I see. Okay, we can narrow that one down a bit more. Then I assume. That the city that has the most meth will be like a statistical will be statistical noise from the city that it's has actually, the least. Um, it's actually Edmonton. That is uh, not surprising. Ed- Edmonton has the highest level of meth in its wastewater when tested. <laughs> that's a good stat. That's yeah. You, all right. You, you have to smoke a lot of meth to get over that your hockey team is the Oilers. It could, <laughs> it could just be one guy smoking a lot of meth, though. <laughs> I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, when there's a will, there's a way. Sometimes you really just gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and smoke and so much that dragon, you can God damn it. contaminate <laughs> the entire city's water supply. I will, I will say that uh, Halifax and Montreal, highest levels of cannabis use. That also not shocking. That seems about right. Yeah, you gotta do something to forget that you've been in Halifax, a city which I like. Yes, okay, Never been so there. Halifax was founded in 1749, Named for George Montague Dunk. <laughs> Lord Halifax, I'm gonna assume. Lord Second Earl of Halifax. Oh, is that even a lord? Uh, the no. Second Earl of Dunk. Yes. He invented the basket. Yes. <laughs> well before basketball was invented, he invented Dunk. This guy was on Twitter just yeah. <laughs> in Ted Cruz's replies. It is on the east coast of Nova Scotia, right around here in this inset, right? Um, Halifax is on one side of the harbor, and Dartmouth is on the other side of the harbor, right? Why um, is it ever? It has very calm waters, it has naturally uh, not very variable tides, 
very deep water is very good for, you know, docks and port facilities, right? And that's sort of why the history of Halifax is sort of the history of its port, and the port has traditionally prospered mostly in times of conflict, right? Mm. Um, you know, it's it's today, of course, it's home of many important uh, sites and tourist attractions like the Halifax Citadel uh, and Pizza Corner and <laughs> and the Trailer Park, Park Boys, Boys Bar. Bar. Yeah, and uh, that Canada 150 sign they had. That's a good point. Well, uh, I, that might be McNabb's Island. Now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those places I think most people really only experience from when they're taking a transatlantic flight and it shows up on the little map, right? And, and you sort of look at it and you're like, hmm, I'm never going to go there. Uh, of course, Liam and I have been there twice, but... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, because you, you love going to to places where no one goes. Yeah. Yes, that's our shtick. for some reason. <laughs> yes, that is, that's your whole thing. That's yeah. what we do. We're very happy. So about it's it. like it's like you, you're gonna you're gonna come to Scotland sooner or later, and you're not gonna go to Glasgow. You're not gonna go to Edinburgh. You're not even gonna go to Aberdeen. You're gonna go to Dundee. Yes, I'd love to go to Dundee. We'll go to Everness. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, Everness is touristy, man. They got the lock. That's a good point. Yeah. We're gonna so, go see the the River Ness and go ride Nessie. Fight me a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna find and kill God and Nessie. <laughs> yeah, what's the purpose of your visit to the United <laughs> Kingdom, Mr. Anderson? I'm gonna find and kill God. <laughs> okay, so is that like business or like recreation? <laughs> He's just the protagonist in a Japanese RPG now. <laughs> uh, so Halifax became the capital of Nova Scotia. After the British came in, they uh, fucked up the uh, First Nation there called the Meek Mac, right? Um, and the Brits, shortly afterwards, built the Halifax Citadel, which is the big fort there, stands on top of the big hill to this day to defend against both the First Nations and the French, right? And, we love doing and, that and shit. And the bank right across the street yes. that they point the cannon at hourly. They do, uh, they do do a noon cannon shot today, which is... Aimed directly at the Scotiabank building, yes. Uh, <laughs> Load the cannon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I pretty soon became the North American like station, like the main the main naval base for the Royal Navy. But with the final defeat of the French around 1760, it became you less lost important. Speak English. Yeah. <laughs> um, until around the American Revolution, uh, when loyalist refugees flooded into the city. Again, it became a major staging point for naval attacks on the 13 colonies. Yeah, didn't go as well as they should have done because of uh, noted pirate John Paul Jones. Yes. Do you mean American hero John Paul Jones? Well, if he was so much of an American hero, why did he sell his service to the Russians immediately afterwards? Uh, because he's an entrepreneur. He's an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you yeah. don't like the spirit of America. <laughs> the spirit's mostly slaves. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. pretty much entirely slaves. After the American Revolution and then later the War of 1812, again, Halifax becomes less important as a naval port. The Royal Navy actually moves down to Bermuda in 1818, but it does become a little bit more important as a trade port. Um, now, this changed once again in 1867 when Ontario, Quebec, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick unified into British Canada, right? Much to the chagrin of Halifax merchants, who were making a lot of money, mostly trading with Boston and New York, right? So if things had shaken out differently, this could have been in like the 51st state. 
Uh, honestly, yeah. Um, it wasn't from a lack of trying. We invaded Canada during the War of 1812 and got stomped. And we'll burn <laughs> York again. <laughs> it is. It is kind of funny when you, if you go to the Halifax Citadel, they have a whole bunch of uh, you know Canadian patriotic um, uh, displays there showing how they kicked the uh, Americans' asses. You know, I was, was kind of like, ah, oh, well, okay. Yeah, okay, fair I, enough. Yeah, yeah fair, fair enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, trying to like I think trying it's... to travel the world, trying to collect every museum about how somebody beat the Americans in a war. I think it's uh, St. John, New Brunswick, that has, uh, there's a church there that has the colonial Massachusetts, like, ceremonial pike, and they won't give it back. And if you go, <laughs> if you go to uh, the Citadel of Quebec City, I forget what they have that they won't give back. It may be a captured gun from the War of 1812. They refuse to give it back to us. Spoils the wool. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You want your pointy stick back. <laughs> um, it's now, the curse. The Habs will never be a good hockey team. Shut up. <laughs> because of the because of that ill-gotten pike. Yes, that's right. The curse of the pike. The the intercolonial railroad reached Halifax in 1853, but uh, there weren't a lot of the the port facilities were kind of underdeveloped at that point. And uh, the railroad took a sort of indirect and orderly route out of Halifax. And as a result, once Canada unified, uh, a lot of uh, goods bound for Canada sort of bypassed Halifax and either went to Montreal, but only in the summer because Montreal's port used to freeze over. Um, Or they'd go by way of Portland, Maine or Boston, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, the only thing supporting the economy was the big Royal Navy presence. Um, you know, in the Civil War, they traded with both the Union and the Confederacy. Uh, they and played both sides, dicks. so you always come out yeah. on top. Exactly. Yeah, I too have played Far Cry too. <laughs> <laughs> the, the uh, yeah, there's uh, there's definite class split. You know, the uh, the merchant class liked the Confederacy, and normal people were 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 more more on the Union side. Um, they, they, it's a regular, regular Britain shit too. Yes, they they wound up providing shelter for the uh, CSS Tallahassee, which went raiding up the uh, coast of uh, uh, on the up the east coast, and then sought shelter and refueling in Halifax. And then a bunch of Union ships blockaded the harbor, and and then they they managed to uh, just slip out under cover of darkness. Goddamn Canadians. <laughs> I like I like how naval warfare at one time was easy enough that it's just like you leave earlier than the other guy See gets up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just dip out the back door. <laughs> Do the words out the back mean anything to you? <laughs> so not a very bad promotion of Canada's only major ice-free mainland port sort of hindered the Haligonian economy. Is that really? Is that the Yes. Wow, that's a that's awful. I mean, by this by this point, why not just go to like Dunkish? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So throughout the 19th century, they have an incredibly heavily fortified harbor with very few facilities for moving goods and you know from from ships and back. You know, it was mostly just a naval port, right? Uh, they didn't have the modern facilities they necessary to compete 
nor the economic base to build out those facilities. And federal support was not forthcoming. It's kind of came to a head around, like with the 1912 sinking of the Titanic, right? Um, Halifax became a major base of operations for recovery of the dead from the Titanic, right? Mostly those floating mm. in the water. Um, and the port facilities were completely overwhelmed by uh, a bunch of rich people who had come to Halifax to recover the the bodies of their loved ones. Um, and, and it, you know, crowded up all the rail uh, network, right? Because, of course, all these people were rich and came in private railroad cars. Um, oh, the snowpiercer. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the end of the line is actually, correct me if I'm mistaken, Roz, but it's in Halifax, right? The end of the Everybody line. Everybody off on the dunk station. <laughs> yeah. Well, the end dunk of- street. This is dunk streets. By, by 1912, the end of the line was up at um, Sydney. Oh, right. And they yeah. moved it back. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But, you know, shortly after this is when major improvements to the Halifax Harbor started to be implemented. And it was just in time because, of course, of something called World War One. Right. Mm. Um, Listen to Joe's show, Lions Led by Donkeys, to learn more about World War One and all the idiot commanders in it. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're gonna do an, a three thousand part series about the about World War One, wherein I just <laughs> slowly slip into a pit of alcoholic yeah. depression. One one episode for each Battle of the Isonzo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so this is a this is a view of the Halifax Harbor and its rail yards, or at least some of them. Uh, you know, before the uh, b- before the incident we're going to talk about, you can see this relatively small rail yard fairly constricted there's like one track coming down from the north it's really small um, port too yeah um and it's uh there's not a there's not a huge amount of facilities right despite the fact that this is again i cannot stress enough the only year-round ice-free harbor in atlantic canada at this point they just are mm-hmm. like nah fuck it send it to montreal or send it through america <laughs> So what did Halifax even do to be so like maligned that everybody was like, yeah, no, fuck you. Um the dunk curse. Yeah, it mm. was the dunk curse. <laughs> Constantly getting dunked on. <laughs> I like I like the little Halifax Municipal Archives logo on the bottom left where they've clearly like paid a lot of money for someone to write Halifax in a yeah. in a cool font. And and then, like, remove, yeah. Yeah. remove the crossbars from the A's. Yes. So, okay, so World War I, uh, what happened is a guy shot another guy, and everyone got real mad about it, right? And they started fighting each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. Gavrilo Princeps did nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, racist against Serbs. He was not wrong about that one. Yeah. So, uh, except uh, early on, America didn't care. They started to care later for reasons we'll talk about in a moment. We had to make uh, the world mm. safe for democracy. Yes. Had to get really into like uniforms with like long wound putties, you know? How big can our hats be and still fit in the trench? <laughs> <laughs> Most uh, Canadian exports, you know, for the war effort, still went through Montreal or Portland or Boston until something happened. Right? Hmm. That something was called unrestricted submarine warfare. Ooh, submarine, a future episode, I feel. Yes. Well, Joe already did an episode on Lions uh, about uh, being a German U-boat guy. 
<laughs> it mm. turns out not good. Not good. <laughs> yeah, what, what, when did you do that, Joe? Uh, I think that was it was 2020. Um, no, I was I was joking to the effect that you had been in like the Kriegsmarine there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, no comment on my uh, on my trip to Argentina <laughs> post 1945. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, in sort of uh, there, there are some like customs of naval warfare with regard to opening fire on unarmed merchant ships, right? Um, yeah, so, gentlemanly shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. D- dating back to the 16th century. Again, these are these these are customs. You know, they're not like strictly enforced. I, you know, it's, they're they're more like guidelines, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just like norms in a democracy, and nothing happens when you break them. Yeah. And, and to be fair, they really only applied when like two white people were fighting one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thinking th- about being a, like a lib pirate who's like Henry Avery does not represent us. <laughs> so you know, there's something called a, a privateer, right? And these were sort of like pirates operating under state sanction, right? So you know, yeah, a contractor. We call those a contractor now. Yeah, exactly. Blackwater pirates. You could just say John Paul Jones, really. Yeah. It's a guy, he's got a boat, he's got a crew, he's got some guns, right? You know, and um, depending, uh, you know, if, if a country was at war with another one, that country might issue something called a letter of mark to the privateers, right? That authorizes them to attack and capture enemy vessels subject to certain rules, right? Um, and, you know, you could, your privateer ranges from someone who actively goes out and hunts, you know, other vessels to capture to like just an ordinary merchant vessel that happens to have some armament on it. And in the course of their regular trips, they might just decide, yeah, let's try and get that guy. Right. (laughs) It's a shame. The only people that can have that job currently live off the coast of Somalia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, give it another few decades for like civil society to collapse, and I predict a bright future for all of us in the fast boats. Oh yeah, climate pirates. Ooh, yeah. I love to like sail around the Denver Islands, like <laughs> waiting. <laughs> so the rules were called prize rules, right? Um, and you know, if you a privateer captured an enemy vessel, you would gain legal possession of that vessel and its cargo, subject to a prize court which would determine, you know, whether the ship was legally seized, and if so, what portion of the value of the ship should be awarded to you or the crew or whatever, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, all kinds of things could affect the case of a privateer negatively. One of the penalties was, you know, I guess you might call it unnecessary roughness, right? Um, <laughs> rough, roughing the passer, fifteen yeah. yards. <laughs> As the referee com- comes out of the ocean like a dugong. <laughs> if you're a privateer and you want to capture a vessel, your ideal one was like I. You sort of you sort of fire a single warning shot, right? Um, the target boat uh, heaved to, right? It stopped. And then, you know, you have a boarding party, you go in, you tell the crew, look, we're in charge now. And they're like, all right, whatever. And then, you know, you capture the crew, you bring them back to port, you capture the boat, you have a, a, your extra crew, your prize crew goes on that boat and sort of sails it to where you want to go. And then, 
And then this yeah. is... It was easier when there was impressment because none of those guys wanted to be there in the first place. Exactly, right? Uh, and this, this was a fairly frequent outcome, right? You know, your cargo is not worth dying for. And no. it's in the privateer's interest to capture a vessel which isn't full of holes from cannonballs, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not worth dying for. It's also not worth killing for. Yes. Yeah, it's just some rich guy's stuff. He's on that boat. Yeah. yeah, this is this is this is a mugging essentially. Basically, yeah. Um, but if there was a battle and then you won, you then were sort of obliged to ensure the safety of the surviving crew once the battle was over. And once you once you got back to shore, there'd be a prize court to sort of take testimony from the surviving crew to determine if and to what extent the prize was to be awarded to the privateer. Obviously, this is not always, you know, going to go exactly swimmingly, right? But <laughs> and you know, these these prize rules also apply to naval vessels. If you ever, and actually, a formal naval vessel, the uh, the captain could claim a prize just as well as a privateer. Oh yeah, this was yeah. a way to like make your name as a Royal Navy officer was to to capture particularly other warships was the prestigious thing. Yes. Because then you could just refit those, which means you end up with like these weird combinations of names. So you'll have like HMS like Duc d'Orléans, because it was like a French ship and they couldn't be bothered to repaint it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you'll go through the effort to seize it by force, like new paint job, fuck that shit. Fuck that, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna send a guy down on a bosun's chair? Absolutely not. No. We have an HMS Triomphant. I don't give a shit. <laughs> we all have to learn these three words of French now. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, uh, they, they just, uh, they just, um, they just crudely paint HMS next to the, uh, <laughs> the existing name. What yeah. do you want, Captain? Look, look, I put HMS. That way, they know it's ours. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm getting drunk. So privateering was mostly over by the end of the American Civil War, but some of the customs remained, right? Some including, you know, that it's kind of, you know, it's kind of bad form to just sink a merchant vessel and murder all its uh, crew, right? You know, mm. um, and this sort of evolves into cruiser rules uh, by um, there's something called cruiser rules by like 1909, yeah, right? Surface raiders. Yeah. Uh, back in the back in the early days of the First World War, when you just had a couple of like uh, German German like uh, cruisers just like wandering around uh, the South Atlantic, uh, knocking over colliers and stuff. Yeah. But you know the rules were sort of like okay, unarmed vessel can't be attacked without warning. Can be fired on only if it resists boarding. If it's boarded, can only be destroyed after ensuring safety of the crew. Blah 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 blah. That usually means taking them aboard the attacking ship rather than you know sticking them in the lifeboats, right? Um, mm. And it's interesting; these persisted on surface ships a lot longer than they did on submarines. Like yes. even towards the the late end of the war, you'd still see like when when surface raiders, especially German ones, were a thing, they would just fully like roll up on. Uh, on like a, a merchant ship with a big banner strung across the front of the bridge saying, don't send an SOS or we'll shoot at you. <laughs> <laughs> like in like English, French, German. We know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but how would they know? Well, they detect the radio signal going yeah. out, I think. Well, I don't think uh, they, yeah, they wouldn't have had radio. They would have had to have done a flare or something like that. 
I'm th- uh, I've jumped ahead here. I'm thinking World War Two yeah. now. Well, I mean, the there was there was naval radios even the, during the Russo-Japanese War, but they were not effective uh, <laughs> very often. They had st- every once in a while they still had to send some asshole up the ladder with flags and shit. They gotta <laughs> they gotta send a guy out in a little steam launch, and he's trying to run away from the battleship. <laughs> <laughs> Just gotta like, stop shooting at me as he's trying to get the uh, the flags up. They'd have to send out a runner, but in this case, it's just a guy you shave naked and make swim really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oil him up. (laughs) (laughs) They can't catch him if he's slick. (laughs) So around this time, the Germans were developing submarines, you know, undersea boats, right? And they have submarines have difficulty with cruiser rules, right? Mm. Um, They barely have enough room for their own crew, right? let alone a captured merchant crew. Uh, so, you know, at the outbreak of World War I, U-boat captains tried to sort of follow cruiser rules, but it was tedious and complicated. You know, the first vessel sunk by a U-boat, which was a collier called SS Giltra, proceeded as follows. Step one, U-17 surfaces near the Giltra, uh, which is just off the coast of Norway, and it, it stops them, right? A boarding party, a party Searches the boarding party. (laughs) A boarding party searches the vessel for contraband. Uh, Once they were satisfied, uh, step two. Once they were satisfied that the uh, Giltra was in fact shipping supplies for the war effort, U-17's captain ordered the crew of the Giltra into the lifeboats. Uh, Step three was the boarding party then scuttles the Giltra. They didn't actually fire on it. Step four, the U-boat towed all the lifeboats to shore. Oh, that's that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) So this process is uh, slow and cumbersome and leaves the uh, U-boat on the surface for a long time where it's vulnerable. And then it was complicated further when the British introduced something called the Q-boat, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Which is uh, a vessel that appears to be a merchant ship, but when the U-boat surfaces to say, hey, you're being boarded. Uh, the Q-boat has big guns that pop up and then shoot the U-boat, right? It's such a fun, cartoonish idea. Mm. You like literally have like guns concealed behind false walls and stuff mm-hmm. that you just drop over the side. You run up the flag really quickly oh, yeah. and just kind of like hope <laughs> for the best. Don't forget that part, otherwise it's illegal. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the Q-boat's worked okay you know but the main thing they did was provoke the germans into saying all right we're going to ignore cruiser rules uh so you get unrestricted submarine warfare where the u-boats just roll up on anyone and blow them up at any time for no real reason and then leave right that's rude Mm -hmm. um you know including including stuff like the lusitania for instance so that of course provoked america to join the war right and it forced the British into doing something they really didn't want to do, which was invest resources into heavily armed transatlantic merchant convoys. Um, the naval officers of this period, right through to the Second World War, hated convoys. Uh, not least because for like simple careerism reasons, you think it's beneath you, right? You, you, yeah. you like you've trained your entire career to go out and do the like swashbuckling thing, right? On as as ideally as big a ship as possible, and instead now you're stuck on a terrible small ship with awful sea keeping that like pitches up and down all over the place, and you're just like 
kind of like hanging out with the merchant marine and it doesn't make you feel very cool yeah exactly <laughs> you're just sort of like all right we're gonna we're doing it we're doing we're gonna go back and forth across the ocean we're gonna be real bored yeah, it's it's like you, you want to be a naval officer and instead you're a truck driver. God damn it, I wanted to go get blown up and here I am doing something safe. <laughs> Fuck this. <That> sucks ass! <laughs> hey, if you're lucky, you can do both. Yeah, that's right. Arctic convoys and you, shit. You can get, yeah, safely blown up. Right? <laughs> oh, like the LAPD, yes. Yes. So, um... One of the things this does is it really increases the importance of Halifax as a transatlantic port due to its inland deep water Bedford Basin, right? The Bedford Basin is um, this right here, right? Um, so, you know, basically uh, the U-boats couldn't get in there because there was a nice U-boat net across the harbor. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I don't think there was that much room for them to go in underwater, right? Um, and, you know, the channel is very heavily defended. Um, and so, You have a, like, limited period of time that you can be submerged at this point, a pretty strictly limited period. Yeah. So, like, getting in, uh, destroying ships, and getting back out again isn't really so viable. And, um... So you you could assemble all the convoys in the basin and then send them out, you know, uh, and and you could be pretty well sure there were no U-boats right nearby because uh, you, you would see them. Um, <laughs> so the result of this is Halifax becomes not only a, a convoy sort of marshalling point, um, all neutral ships who are required to stop at Halifax for inspection as well. Uh, Hmm. So uh, let's introduce our characters. Okay, dramatis persona. Yes, this is the SS Mont Blanc, right? Which is something called a it's a tramp steamer, right? Which means it doesn't follow a regular schedule. Sort of rolls up into port and says, "Hey, what cargo do you got?" Okay, we'll take that somewhere, right? Yeah, <laughs> tramp is English for hobo here. That'll do it. Yeah. Oh, I thought we were just calling it a mean name. <laughs> um, that that does make the uh, the name at at the stern of the boat the stamp, correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Joe. I believe it does. <laughs> she was three hundred and twenty feet long. All of them tall girls, man. Yeah. Four, <laughs> Forty-four foot beam, fifteen foot draft. Right? Dirty to me. Thick. Uh, Thick. Thicker than a snicker, man. Had a coal-fired triple expansion steam engine. Pretty standard at the time. Uh, looks like two masts. Uh -huh. um, and, um, alright, so she left New York Harbor December 1st for Halifax to join a convoy bound for Europe. Now, at New York... Already feels like the opening line to a song. <laughs> <laughs> at New York, she was loaded with TNT, picric oh, acid. Shit, okay. <laughs> uh, Picric acid, which is an explosive which spontaneously detonates with shock, right? Oh, you need that. You gotta have that. It's also loaded with gun cotton, and on deck, uh, they had several barrels of a high-octane fuel known as benzol. Uh, and that's a coal tar product consisting mostly of benzene and toluene. Uh, or toluene. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, it's, it's used as like a high-octane sort of anti-knock compound, right? 
uh, like all of the anti-knock compounds, it's extremely nasty. Um, mm. You know, because tetraethyl lead was the other big one, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, this one gave you. That one makes you dumb. This one gives you cancer. Um, <laughs> now mix them together. Let's have a party. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, she arrived in Halifax December fifth, right? And usually, ships carrying dangerous goods like this were not actually allowed in the Halifax Harbor. But of course, there's a war on, damn it. Mm. So they were going to let the ship into the basin, or they were supposed to. Because it showed up late, the submarine nets were raised for the night, and no one was allowed in or out of the harbor. So Mont Blanc dropped anchor and waited until 7.30 a.m. the following morning to head into the Bedford Basin, right? Mm. Shows up after curfew and has to like wait to get let in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's our other character. Uh, n- note on the side here, it says Belgian Relief. T- to-, to let you know it's, it's not carrying uh, any- anything A shit ton illegal. of guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the SS Emo, right? Chartered oh, by... Me. Yeah. <laughs> I was a huge fan of it in the uh, mid 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> it's, All right. So yes, SS take you back Sunday. Yeah. It's emo <laughs> with an I. Oh, that's how I know it's exotic. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So this was a neutral ship intended to bring humanitarian supplies to Belgium, right? Co- chartered by the Belgian Relief Commission. Um, and it was traveling. A likely story. It was traveling <laughs> empty to New York Harbor, right? Um, to pick up the supplies and then come back. Um, now, this is a long and narrow ship, 430 feet long, 45-foot beam, 30-foot draft, including a keel because it has four masts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a former whaling supply ship, and it had some issues when it traveled empty, right? Oh, boy. Um, because... It, it it rode pretty high in the water, so the rudder was almost out of the water, uh, and she was equipped with a single right-hand propeller, right? So, you know, a lot of ships have two propellers. This one had one propeller mounted in the mil- middle, and as a result, there was some transverse thrust from this. So while underway, she always veered to port, and while in reverse, <laughs> she swung starboard, right? <laughs> Oh, good. It's like, this, it's like my old is, Jeep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get the keys to this thing, and the guy's like, yeah, it's got this thing. So, like, when you go over like 30, it's going to start to like go left a little bit. Uh, she arrived December 3rd for inspection, given clearance to leave the base in December 5th. But there was a load of coal for the trip to New York City that arrived late, you know, for fuel, right? So she waited until 7.30 a.m. the following morning when the submarine nets were uh, uh, raised to uh, leave the basin. All right? All right. For want of a nail. Yes. So in order to make up for the delay in leaving Halifax, the SSEMO's pilot, uh, William Hayes, tried a novel, innovative technique, right, which was speeding. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Halifax Drift. Yes. Oh, yes, actually. (laughs) Your Uh, shit might be strong, but it's not as strong as family. (laughs) Okay. 
So let's let's establish our geography here. Over here is the basin. Over mm. here is the entrance to the harbor, right? The submarine net went from George's Island to Pier 21, right? That was the part that moved. The rest of it, I believe, was just a static submarine net that couldn't be raised or lowered, right? It's so funny to me to like barricade a submarine out with a like a metal mm -hmm. net. Stay away! Hey, hey! Like, talking to a, the submersible tower. Hey. Yeah, the, the rabbit-proof fence. Yes. <laughs> you run the U-boat into it. It just makes this horrible noise, and you're just like, "Well, never mind." Put it in reverse. Now there's some rules for the harbor, which are right-hand traffic. Okay. All ships pass port to port, is what they said. Um, and you have a five-knot speed limit. So the SS Emo was outbound, passing under what's sort of like the current location of this, uh, this bridge here, the uh, A. Murray McKay Bridge, adjacent to a neighborhood called Richmond, right, which is right around here. Um, and this is a location in the harbor called the Narrows, right? It's called that because it's very narrow. Very good. Ah, uh, yes. A lot of a lot of descriptive names in this uh, episode. Okay, there's this. The the the, the emo is heading out. Uh, she's of course speeding, and additionally drifting to port. Right. I need to switch <laughs> to another color here. Um, here we'll put the emo in green. Right. Speeding, drifting to port, just vaguely. Not very well controllable because again the rudder is way up out of the water. She was less than ideal. Yes. And there was a bunch of other traffic in the harbor because they just opened the net, right? So the first thing that happened is SS Emo passes another tramp steamer, the SS Clara, which was just straight up being piloted on the wrong side of the harbor, right? Just like, <laughs> everybody's just like, so good at this fuck it, right can we discount that everybody is just trashed right now yeah <laughs> gotta deal with being in Halifax somehow they have to pass on the starboard right and then after that they came across the tugboat Stella Maris right what was a good name for a ship on the correct side of the harbor right only just barely. So, of course, they have to keep going around the other side, right? So now, now they're entirely on the wrong side of the harbor and also speeding, right? <laughs> you think Perfect. maybe you might want to, like, slow down? No. No. Gotta get out. We good. I, I had to take my morning poop. <laughs> well, in fairness... <laughs> it's a ship. You can do that on the move. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, everyone knows sea captains are well known for just dropping loads in their pants. <laughs> what do sea captains that I have in common? <laughs> IBS. So, so in the meantime, the uh, Mont Blanc was plodding down the harbor, you know, sort of a reasonable pace on the right side Doing of the harbor. Doing night ship stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, the the pilot, Francis Mackley, had really wanted a guard ship owing to the ship's dangerous cargo, but the the harbor didn't give him one, right? 
You know, this channel full of uh, boats that kind of can't turn and are speeding and are on the wrong side of the lane. Just yeah. go ahead and take this atom bomb down that way unprotected. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so about three quarters of a mile away. Mackley spotted the SS Emo, right? Buried down on, on them at high speed. Now, this is high, high speed for a ship, right? Um, over five knots. Yeah, over right. five knots. It's making wake, which yeah. is like barbaric to do in a harbor. Traveling at the speed of smell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and appeared to be attempting to pass them on the starboard side, right? So uh, for those of you with visuals here, um, the emo is in green. The Mont Blanc is in yellow here. Okay. So Mackley on the Mont Blanc sounded the ship's whistle to indicate that he had the right of way, right? Honk. The emo sounded back with two whistles to indicate they weren't going to give way. It's so great <laughs> that you have a specific whistle code for that. I'm yeah. just like, no. no. <laughs> Fuck you. How many, honk, how, honk. Many, how many honks was that? Fuck him, hit the, hit the triple honk. Hit the triple honk, <laughs> yeah. Now, in fairness, they probably couldn't have steered, um, steered to uh, starboard if they had tried, or at least not quickly enough. Um, so Mackley was like, all right, all right, I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and go further starboard. Right. Um, so he wants to go this, he's going this way, or excuse me, this incident happened further back here. Um, all right. So, and in the meantime, of course, we have um, the Emo, which is still sort of bearing to port, right? Mm. Okay. Both ships cut their engines. They're still whistling back and forth at each other, <laughs> right? Honk. Increasingly honk, angry honk. whistling. <laughs> yeah. Honk. Angry honking intensifies. <laughs> so, so at some point they're like they're very close to each other. Mackley orders hard port, right? He he orders hard port, and the ships actually miss each other, right? Oh, good. All right. Well, episode next over. episode yeah, is the Conaros Bridge Disaster. Yeah. Um, so it looked like they had missed each other, and they were drifting very, very slowly at this point. When the pilot of the Emo or the captain. We're not quite sure. Um, suddenly ordered reverse thrust on the engines, right? Oh, no, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they, and as a result, the emo went backwards and, of course, pitched starboard right into the Mont Blanc. And At about one knot, yes. which is like not fast. <laughs> not That's very like fast. A, no. that, that is a, a a single donk. Yeah, <laughs> and it caused just a little bit of superficial damage, and it knocked over a couple barrels, which meant all that benzole, the benzol, however it's pronounced, <laughs> benzole. I I don't know. You guys have never been to Benzole Bay? It's a mm -hmm. wonderful all inclusive resort. It spilled out all over the deck, spilled into the hold, it spilled over the side of the ship, right? And as the emo disengaged, scraping its bow along the side of the Mont Blanc, some sparks ignited the uh, benzol. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. This is about 8.45 a.m., right? Oh, well, well, at least you would be, at least if you had uh, missed your alarm. Small mercies. Well, you probably heard the ships, uh, you know, screaming at each other with whistles. True. Yeah. You just, like, put a pillow over your head and you're just like... Not today. Mondays, am I right? Yeah. A guy who wakes up with a headache and he just, like, hears that and he's just like, oh, just kill me. (laughs) So the captain of the Mont Blanc immediately gave the order to abandon ship because he was like, this thing's going to blow up, right? (laughs) Uh, They tried to relay this information to the crew of the Emo, but they couldn't hear them, (laughs) right? They just straight up couldn't hear them. That's uh, a problem. What? 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 Have you tried, hit, what? Have you, have you tried hitting the honks again? We have <laughs> yeah. a honk for abandoned ship. Meanwhile, uh, sailors on the nearby ships and residents of Halifax and Dartmouth had heard all the ship's whistles. And uh, they, they all knew what that meant. And so they gathered on, on, on the deck of ships or at their windows or on their porches or whatever. To watch two boats crash into each other. <laughs> yeah, a free, a free piece of street theater. Yes. So SS Mont Blanc was, you know, they abandoned ship very, pretty quickly. It drifted out of the main channel, right? Beached itself at Pier 6, which is right where the big Irving shipyard is today. Boo! <laughs> I, I, is, that, is that considered successful for ghost riding a ship that's about to explode? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're ghost riding if you've abandoned it completely. You'd have to be like standing on it. Attempted mm. ghost riding. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, okay. Okay. So, 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 so here, here's our situation, right? Um, I noticed this area of devastation and area <laughs> of total destruction. Uh, which I, I appreciate a lot. I think that's, that's metal. Yes. Um, so the tugboat mentioned earlier, the Stella Maris, uh, immediately responded to the fire, right? And the captain realized pretty quickly, uh, I don't think our puny fire hose is going <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> right? So um, after consulting with some folks who came over in small boats from a pair of nearby Royal Navy ships, they agreed to pull the Mont Blanc away from Pier 6 because they don't want Pier 6 to catch fire, right? That would be bad. Mm. So they tied a rope to it, but the rope was too small, so the captain of the Stella Maris asked for a new and bigger rope, right? It was 9.04 a.m. when he asked for the rope. And then the Mont Blanc blew up. Oh. (laughs) Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. So the force of the explosion was said to be so incredible that it exposed the bottom of the harbor to the air, right? Jesus. A straight up tsunami swept over the neighborhood of Richmond. Um, anyone who was at their windows was immediately blinded as the oh, shockwave shattered the glass and you know, shoved glass into their eyes. Some of them got even worse injuries than that, right? Hmm. Uh, white, heart sh- white hot shards of metal rained down on Halifax and Dartmouth. Um, the SS Emo was actually shoved by the force of the wave onto land on the Dartmouth side. Um, <laughs> Fuck. The shockwave also overturned coal stoves throughout the city and sparked tire- uh, fires throughout uh, Halifax. Um, 
the Mont Black's uh, forward 90 millimeter gun landed up here, uh, which is about two mile or excuse me, three miles north of the explosion site. I think that's three miles. Um, the gun had a maximum effective range greater than the gun if it had been fired. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The anchor landed two miles south down here. Damn, um, fuck that. The tugboat, the Stella Maris, was also shoved clean across the harbor. Oh, yeah, those poor yeah. fucks. <laughs> um, it killed the 20, insides are just liquefied. Yeah, killed mm. 21 of its crew of 26. Uh, the railroad yard was uh, destroyed. The train station at North Street was destroyed. One telegraph worker at the station stayed behind while the ship was on fire uh, to uh, telegraph down the line. Hold up the train. Ammunition ship a fire in harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Uh, guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Jesus, <laughs> man. He Fuck went my, oh, out shit, like oh, a fuck. poster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They rewarded that guy with uh, Canada's highest honor, a heritage minute. Just plopping <laughs> yes. a beaver right down on his head. Yeah. Well, I did stop a bunch of passenger trains from coming in. Also, uh, those guys in Bhopal, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Same thing. Um, so, yeah, you had, you had parts, uh, places that were, you know, uh, just, just annihilated, right? The whole, whole neighborhood of Richmond was just flattened. Um, this blast was equivalent to 2.9 kilotons or TNT or about one fifth of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Jesus. It makes you think about how fucking bad Hiroshima was. I mean, it burned people into the concrete. So like, not not good. Yeah, this went out a bunch of water, so it just boiled people. Uh, I mean, oh. is that better or is that is that functionally no, better worse. or worse? That's worse. <laughs> Going by the Liam Fear index, that's worse. Yes. <laughs> the scientific based racing system of how much it shits me up. Yes. Yeah. Just describe to Liam how bad things sound like they'll hurt. He screams, then you measure them <laughs> on the screen chart. <laughs> it's like one of those pain charts, like one out of ten. Like, you know, it scares you a little bit, scares you a lot. <laughs> Worst terror you can imagine. It, it's progressively more afraid Liam faces. <laughs> Thanks, Megala. Uh... <laughs> Roz, you there? Yes. Oh. Um, You're just giving a moment of silence for the guy who went out posting. Yes, exactly. Logging on to tell to tell your friends online that uh, your you, your shit's gonna explode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gonna die. LOL. <laughs> What's LOL in Morse code? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know this 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 is just an astounding amount of devastation. Just instantly, um, you know. Uh, residents and first responders, you know, they came out immediately trying to locate any victims and rescue them. Anyone with a vehicle drove the wounded to the military hospital and they admitted about 1400 people that day. Good Um, God. uh, Yeah. On the plus side, I did find out what, uh, what LOL is in Morse code. (laughs) That's an embarrassing (laughs) final transmission. Yeah. (laughs) You know, some firefighters had responded to the blaze immediately, and uh, apparently Canada's first motorized fire engine, the Patricia... It'll never catch on. Yeah, never catch on. 
Uh, and so a good chunk of the the city's firefighters were killed in the explosion immediately. Oh, Texas City fire. Why yeah. does this so always happen? Because they're right near the explosion, Joe. Yeah, I mean, Although, but like, didn't you say that like twenty one out of twenty six of like the the, the tug crew, what, like yeah. the tug crew, yeah, yeah, what happened to the other five of them? Uh, they were they were in the front side of the tug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they 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 got a hell of a ride. This tug comes with explosive shielding. Just watching their friends get churned to marinara five inches away from them. Well, like explosions are fucking weird, man. There was one guy I read about in this who survived this because he got blown into one of the holds of the ship he was on. And like that, that was it was enough to like lift him off his feet and carry him into the hold, which was enough to like save his life. That'll do it. One guy just asking his incinerated buddy, hot enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot that everyone this was happening to was Canadian too. Yes. Just to add that sort of air of like unreality to it. Everybody apologizing as they get vaporized by the shockwave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, bud. Sorry, bud. <laughs> yeah, lo- solemnly logging on to my telegraph station to send the final message. Going out for a rip, are you, bud? <laughs> so there's a lot of panic that the explosion was a German bomb. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people thought there'd be more bombs, but the bombs didn't happen, right? So this was an enormous scene of utter demonst- uh, utter devastation, and and you know, uh, to add insult to injury, the next day there was 16 inches of snow, just a huge blizzard, right? Of course, fucking Canada, man. Yeah, I remind you that you're still in Canada, not the front. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of the, some of the train lines had to be suspended. The telegraph lines went down. They couldn't really search for su- survivors so effectively. Um, you know, so um, the exact number of victims is unknown. The Halifax Explosion Remembrance Book named 1,782 victims, 9,000 people injured, 1,630 Jesus. homes destroyed, another 12,000 damaged, roughly 6,000 people left homeless. And far more with insufficient shelter, right? And again, this from a like one knot impact. Yeah. Like a, a single like bonk. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm moving my finger very, yeah. very slowly mm-hmm. to indicate yeah, that. To indicate doink. <laughs> doink. With this one life hack, you can turn this Canadian suburb into Passchendaele overnight. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, but uh, in, it, uh, the day of. Like there was a huge relief effort where, um, you know, the, uh, the cities everywhere sent like just train loads of relief workers into the city. Um, I think particularly Boston, right. They just, they managed to get trains there the same day, which is something you can't yeah, trying to get anymore. the pike back. Yeah. <laughs> Now's our chance boys. <laughs> there was a, a community of Mi'kmaq, the, 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 the first nations, right. Uh, hmm. close to the uh, the explosion and uh, during the rebuilding efforts um, you know that they, they sort of uh, tried to make them go away um, oh boy yeah. oh, listen it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be um, you know 20th century history if we didn't get some genocide in there yes exactly they also they also tried to uh, sort of make the uh, the local African African Canadian neighborhood called Africville. They tried to make that go away as well. Uh, <laughs> well I applaud yeah. the Canadians for doing this at a time of horrific adversity. 
I know, right? <laughs> There's always genociding to be done. The, the, if you get enough Canadians around enough spare lumber, they're like, bet you we could build a residential school out of us. For reference, I, I don't know where the uh, Mi'kmaq uh, uh, community was. Africville was right here. Y- you can see. Uh, coincidentally, they did eventually build a freeway through it. Um, oh, of course. Of course, course they did. did. Why wouldn't they do that, right? Um, See, Canada and America aren't that much different. Yeah, exactly. Our racism just have slightly different flavors. Yours <laughs> has cheese curds on top. The relief effort, you know, it went on. Um, and I, I, one legacy of that is um, I think Halifax started sending Boston Christmas trees every year. Yes. Um, in a, it's really weird. In gratitude Thank you. for the aid by the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts Public Safety Committee. Um, you got, got a bl- plank, though. Still got the plank. Still got the pipe. No, it's principle in America. Yeah, hang on to it. Um, you can see here, here are some of the, the temporary tents they had to uh, house the unhoused in. Um, yeah, like two feet of snow. Under two feet of snow. That sucks. It is a very low resolution panorama of the harbor, right? Um, well, you don't we, need a lot of pixels when there's not a lot of buildings left. Is yeah, the thing. Say, yeah. 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 Um, and then we have the, uh, the, this is the exposition hall, um, where the last survivor was found, or maybe it was the last body. I forget which. It was the last Perhaps. body. They last dug body. a guy, they dug a guy's like skeleton out of there in 1919. Good Holy Lord. Holy shit. Good Lord. It was a janitor, apparently, who just wow. got like in, you know, like inhumed. And this is a school of some kind that I think was fairly far away from the explosion. Um, yeah, it also destroyed part of the the Canadian uh, Royal Naval College, and um, mm. the, the the part of the Wikipedia for that has the cheery sentence: "Several students and instructors were maimed." Ah, well, <laughs> the judicial inquiry presided over by Justice Arthur Drysdale found a Mont Blanc at fault, basically saying that given the dangerous cargo, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility to avoid collision. If, you, if, you, if you're so if you're so smart, how come I hit you? Yes. <laughs> Stop hitting yourself. Stop yeah, hitting yourself. yourself. Uh, community in Halifax had strong anti-French attitudes, which likely contributed no, to this really? finding. Mont Blanc's captain, uh, Amy Ami Ame, uh, Ame, uh, I think, yeah, Ame Lemadic. Uh, the ship's pilot, uh, <laughs> Amy Lemedic. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's French. I, I don't know. How to, I, That's okay. Amy Yeah, the ship's pilot, um, Francis McKay, which we we talked about earlier, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt. Uh, a, a command, com, Commander Commander F. Evan Wyatt was the the Royal Canadian Navy's like guy in charge of the harbor. Okay, and they were all charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. But the charges were later dropped. Well, at least they did that much right. And another yes. classic move of like simply abandoning all charges. Yeah, it seems like the same justice first found that the Mont Blanc was at fault in a subsequent civil trial, but on appeal, the Canadian Supreme Court found that both ships were at fault. No party was ever convicted for any crime or otherwise successfully prosecuted for any actions that precipitated the disaster. Well, you know, sometimes you just gotta let bygones be bygones, and in a way, aren't we all, uh, like, hanging out at an unsafe waterline level with a propeller that, like, yeah, you lurches know. us to port? 
I don't I don't know uh, where I would be on a ship, but I do know for sure I would have gone out and watched these ships run into one another. But like, oh, oh, hard cool. save. Yeah, I, I would have done that. I would definitely mm, do that. My eyes would have been seared out by fucking oh, flying yeah. glass. 100%. Yeah, I, I we would, would all have been blinded apart from like if one of us had gone to post. <laughs> and then we wouldn't mm-hmm. then we wouldn't uh, be able to do slides with the podcast anymore. <laughs> We'd have to do conventional <laughs> podcasting. Oh, Who does that? Fucking losers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so many people received eye injuries from broken glass that it led to developments in caring for injured eyes and the blind and the founding of the Canadian National Institute of the Blind in 1980 to, uh, 1918. <laughs> yeah, basically the same, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Everybody in there just has a deep phobia of ships. Yes. Understandably. Understandable, <laughs> yes. All right. But the good news was, of course, there was never a huge explosion in Halifax ever again. Good. Until World War II. Oh, oh God, God damn it. Fucking <laughs> damn it. <laughs> How does this keep happening? <laughs> I was going to say that was Halifax built on some sort of burial ground, but it was. Yes. <laughs> it was this built on a couple of dispossessed communities. Yes. <laughs> a, um... A barge, I believe, drifted into an ammunition dump and set it on fire. Stop during- fucking drifting into ammunition things and setting them on fire. How hard is that? Hey, they saw. They heard about the first Halifax drift. They really thought they could hit it out with two <laughs> Halifax, two Furious. Yes. <laughs> this time, this time though, they 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 were prepared and got people the hell out of there. Not that the, prepared. They still had another one. Well, yeah, I mean, they weren't prepared enough to stop it from happening in the first place. Whatever. But <laughs> one of the blind guys is like, "What are the odds this could happen again?" I think, I think just one guy <laughs> got killed in this one. Um, yeah, we need like maiming and blinding numbers here. Exactly. They hadn't rebuilt yet from the first one, so there wasn't much to explode. <laughs> exactly right. Anyway, this uh, this was. One of the largest explosions in history, the first Halifax explosion, not the second one. Yeah. And, uh, we take we take yeah. radio communications and voice communications for granted. Would have been yes. a lot easier than just honking at each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we we technology has actually made things better in some ways, though worse in others. Mm. Sounds like it's a land of contrasts. Yes. Well, at least at least we don't have to like sign WTYP and just like do that with the fucking Morse button. Do, you know? it, do it in Morse code. Uh, I don't know what that was. That's WTYP. Oh, I see. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, we could we send a send a podcast out in form of a transcript. In uh, Western Union Telegram, uh, <laughs> just circling bits that come out and this is and labeling it joke. Yes, <laughs> strong podcast to follow. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was the Halifax explosion. Very good. Very good. Very bad. Very bad. Yeah. Very well, bad. Yes. Do you want to go to the safety uh, third? Yeah, yes. uh, okay. we have a we have a thing on this podcast that we call Safety Third. Shake hands with danger. Okay, here we are. Oh, this is a long one. Yeah, we got some buses.
Nice. Hi, gang. Hi. I used to drive for Unitrans, <laughs> a student-run bus service that served the town of Davis, California, and the local University of California campus. Despite the student-run part of the name, Unitrans was pretty safe. The most dangerous part of the job was dealing with a clique of bus dispatchers and supervisors that saw themselves as morally superior to the drivers despite, number one, being the same age as us, and number two, being bad at their jobs. (laughs) Company politics aside, I would like to share the experience of driving the AEC Regent 3 RT. Hell yes. Is that what that monstrosity is? Yes. I love it. They're in California. Okay. Yeah, why, where else would you put like a Routemaster knockoff other than California? <laughs> they were originally purchased in the late 1960s and early 1970s and have been in and out of service ever since then. Unitrans is now the only bus service that operates the RT in any form, let alone in public service. They were also a nightmare to operate and maintain because nothing built and designed in the 60s was ever meant to make it past the Thatcher era. <laughs> wasn't built to make it through the 60s. Yes. I will now list off the thing that made driving this bus so spicy. Nice. Number one, the cab was tiny. I assume because everyone in, from England is some sort of manlet. That's true. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't adjust the seat, so if you were over six foot, you couldn't really get your legs comfortably in there. If you were shorter than five foot two, your feet wouldn't reach the pedals. Some of the taller drivers would have to spread their knees beyond the diameter of the steering wheel in a perpetual manspread to avoid bumping into the wheel. But, to be fair, you wouldn't really want to extend your legs all the way because, number two, the cab is located right next to the engine, making the floor of the cab, which is made of thin sheet metal, and the rest of the cab incredibly hot after an hour or so of operation. I've heard stories of people's souls melting because of the floor heat. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. And in California, too. Yeah. Famously a place not known for its heat. <laughs> the cabs were installed with the dinkiest fans that promised some sort of heat relief, but they are inoperable and probably haven't been operable for 40 years. If the outside temperature got above 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius, or it's predicted to run above that, the buses would not run. Now, Davis is in the Central Valley, so approximately one-third of the year from May to September is weather that's too hot to drive in. If you wanted to train on these buses during the summer, you'd need to get up at the crack of dawn or suffer at the hands of Vulcan himself. (laughs) Number three, think about how loud idling semi-trucks are from 50 feet away. Okay. Now imagine being on top of one while accelerating with no noise insulation. You are now an RT driver. (laughs) Of course, there was a sliding window next to the engine to help with the noise, but since the heat was so intense after just a short amount of time, it was a choice between your ears or your body's ability to maintain homeostasis. (laughs) The noise made it difficult to hear radio traffic, and whenever I talked on the radio, I had to shout over the engine like I was taking fire in a war zone. Yeah, you're just doing the convoy scene from Black Hawk Down yeah. in, a, in a room master. In, 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 a, in a big double-decker bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number four. Considering the size of the cab, training a new driver for the RT was tricky. 
The trainer couldn't sit side by side with the driver, nor could they sit in the passenger compartment since it was sealed off from the cab. So this is how we did it. You had a small seat, really just a leather cushion, mounted on a triangular frame that was angled against the cab doorway. And then the trainer sat in the seat while we drove halfway in the bus without any kind of restraints. And yes, we would go onto the city streets like this. I couldn't find any pictures of this maneuver, so I attempted to recreate it via MS Paint. See attached. Oh, just <laughs> hanging out of the door. That's just beautiful. Hanging out the door, yeah. <laughs> That's um, so it, like, the, the suicide stare thing for the garbage men that we have in the U.S., but you're going down the highway. Yes. Incredible. I love it. Number five. Since the bus was designed to be driven on the wrong side of the road, the passengers entered and exited onto the street rather than the sidewalk. This necessitated a conductor, a person whose job it was to make sure passengers didn't get hit by cars or fall off. And that last bit is no joke. As the old mayor of London, Ken Livingston, estimated that about 12 people a year died from falling off Routemasters which has essentially the same layout as the Regent. And that was, of course, with conductors on board. Now, this is the reason you fall off a Roadmaster is because you have this platform on the back, right, with the pole, so you can hop on and hop off the bus at any time. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have to, no one has to operate a door. Um, I like those a lot. I think the 12 fatalities are probably worth it for the convenience. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, the good news is that they are back. We have brought those back. Thank uh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when you think about how many there were, I mean, 12 people? Eh. <laughs> I have to admit it was kind of cool to just be able to like jump off jump the back on. of a bus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> getting, getting on was tough, but like getting off was fun. Just slingshotting yourself off on the way to school. That sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you never have to, never have to um, uh, yell back door at the driver. Um, Can you imagine such a world? Yeah. Uh, To prevent passengers and conductors from falling off, we strung a loose, single, half-inch diameter chain spanning the entire rear doorway whenever the bus was in motion. Oh, that's terrifying. That's more terrifying than nothing. Have you seen those (laughs) chains that they used to, like, rope off, like, restaurants and stuff? Where you just, like, they're perfectly at shin level, you know? Yeah, that sounds about right. Safety achieved, or so you think. After many years of chain-only containment, management felt this was too unsafe and added redundancy. A retractable belt located about a foot further inside the bus. <laughs> okay, so you don't actually have a route master at this point. You have, like, the, the scene from Entrapment to get out of the back of this thing. Exactly, right? They, why the fuck would anybody buy this bus? Because it looks like, cool, it, Joe. Yeah, it does. I was hoping there was more than that. That no, no, it looks fancy. Because now we look like we're from London. <laughs> you sound like you're from London. <laughs> I, I genuinely am confused as to why they would think buying this is a good idea. I mean, it's not even set up for the correct side of the road. <laughs> mm. And finally, some miscellaneous spice. Nice. Approximately once a week, coolant leaks, despite regularly getting repaired for coolant leaks. Each replacement part needed to be custom-made and or fabricated on-site. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the lack of handicapped accessibility. Oh yeah, if you, if you can't make, if you can't like traverse a distance of about like six inches vertically up or down, you're not using this bus. Do these even have? These don't even have like a door other than the rear platform. No. Huh. huh? Wow. Huh. <laughs> it seems like a pretty large design flaw. I. That's oh, fine. If you if you if you can't if you can't no- negotiate that, you don't deserve to be using the bus. I was about to say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The lack of power steering. Oh, yeah. I've seen these. (laughs) It's it's like a boat, you know. You've got to, like, around and round and round. Steering was huge, too, is the other thing. And combine that with the guy who's barely fitting behind the fucking steering wheel in the first place. (laughs) How many people, like, hit their, like, elbows doing this? (laughs) Friction burns on the the shaft of your deck (laughs) trying to turn the bus. (laughs) The only means of communication between the conductor and the driver was a bell, like Hector from Breaking Bad. (laughs) Sometimes the conductor would get left behind, and the only way you'd know was the yawning silence beyond the engine's roar. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't give me the I'm in the bus bell ring. Yeah. Despite all the uncomfortableness, these buses were incredibly fun to drive in sort of the way old sports cars are to drive, or I'd imagine because I'm not a car weirdo. It's like... It's like its entire existence was to look aesthetic and be exciting to drive at the expense of everyone's patience, money, and safety. And isn't that the most British thing of all? That's right. Simple as. <laughs> Don't like it, there isn't the door. <laughs> I don't know. Lo- looking, lo- looking aesthetic and being exciting to drive at the expense of everyone else's patience, money, and safety sounds more Italian than British to me. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. I mean, it could be a British motorcycle. Those things are oh, terrible. Oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. Could be a, I a, say this as someone who owns a Triumph. <laughs> <laughs> Land Get ready Rovers for oil are, leaks, kids. I mean, Land Rovers are kind of cool and don't work. Oh, yeah, um, I love yeah. a Land Rover. I hate the new Defender so much. <laughs> um, anyway, lots of love for all of you, especially Alice, whose bold Aww. stances on bridge rigidity is the kind of reality-defying <laughs> confidence I wish to emulate. As a self-conscious trans. <laughs> can they try to make the bus more rigid yeah. without affixing? <laughs> we can only hope. Hoping I don't get killed by something British, Allison. Yeah. Come on, England, <laughs> score some fucking bus. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, this, is an- this is another thing that, uh, uh, that the British could take home. <laughs> <laughs> Was safety yeah. third. Sh- shake hands with danger. Our next episode will be on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge disaster. It's, it's it time won't. for commercials. Give me your commercials. Joe has a book. Joe has two books. Joe has two uh, books. Yeah, Joe has a podcast. Mm-hmm. My my new book comes well, will be out or will be out on July twentieth. Uh, it's called The Prisoner's Dilemma. If you like sci fi, you you might enjoy it. Buy it. Also, it's like free if you have Kindle Unlimited, which I know most people already have because ebooks have destroyed the literary world and make it hard to make a living. But I do make money from them. So please download mm-hmm. it on Kindle Unlimited. It'll cost you literally nothing. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Bezos will give you some money. Uh, yeah, he, he slides me like a cool one penny for every like fucking 50 page reads or whatever. Oh, and that's right. it, it's great. It's good stuff. It's certainly not an industry that is going to collapse and make us all 
hopeless. So please read Joe's book to transfer Jeff Bezos' wealth to Joe Kasabian. Yes, yes. that's right. Read, it, it read is Joe's in fact first Brexit. book, the, the Hooligans of Kandahar. Uh, yeah, great. Except yeah. no imitators, of which there are apparently many. <laughs> that that is my favorite uh 2021 development is that there's random people using like stock footage from like nato armies in the 80s and then renaming the book like the the kandahars of hooligan and it's just really bad photocopies of my book <laughs> one of one of them it was like sideways wow. on the page which tells me that they literally bought a physical copy of it and then put it in a copy machine like one page at a time or a scanner which is more work than I put in for the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other commercials before we go? We'll uh, put a link to the book in the description. To, listen to Lions Led by Donkeys. Listen to Kill James Bond. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, listen to Lions Led by Donkeys. When, two of us are on that. When Franklin <laughs> happened. When, when Franklin. I, I did some work on it recently. Thank I, you. I, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Also, I suppose we should announce that we now have a manager. So if you've been emailing us, uh, now we have a manager to deal with that. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, shirts. Shirts have international shipping. Uh, we emailed about that today, Alice. Yes. No, they do. They oh, do have do. international oh, do shipping. Have international shipping. Yeah, yes. it works. So if you want a shirt and you do not live in the great Satan, the United Snakes of America, you can buy <laughs> one of our shirts, which are union made and yes. have designs by uh, by me or by Matt Lobchansky on them. Uh, you can buy them from the link that will be in the description. Also, the link in the description will include a link to our Patreon page, because people have been telling us for the last six months that the link that we put in the description to our Patreon page is not working. Really? 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 I didn't know that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been mentioning it a few times, but now I thought the only way to do it was to, like, embarrass you in the, okay. in the DM. Well, I'll try and fix it. Thank you. Also, okay. look at the email. There's an email? You have an email? Oh, also, we have a P.O. box. You can send us stuff to the P.O. box. Yes. And that's, uh, that's the thing. That, uh, thanks for coming on, John. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Now we've Find aired all our dirty laundry. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.